You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about K9, so that you don't have to. JR. And I'm Simon. What happened to our K9 party? <laughs> I know. Mark muttered something about having a carpet laid. Oh, really? And Lee just didn't even bother. <clears throat> I suppose K9 and company wasn't as big a drawer as we thought it was going to be. <laughs> well, they missed out, didn't they? Well, did they? We'll <laughs> discover that in a minute. Oh, before we do, hang on, let me. Uh, we've got one email. Did you read it? Uh, very briefly, very briefly. Right, in that case, I shall call it up, because it's only a short one, if I can find you on it. Oh, there you are, right at the top. <clears throat> oh, <clears throat> this one starts with G'day, even though it's from somebody in England, because he was obviously intending for me to read it out in my best Australian accent. <laughs> he says... Great podcast, as always. It would be great to hear your opinions about this. In the final moments of Caves of Androzani, let's say the Doctor has enough bat's milk for both Perry and himself. So he does not regenerate. Would Caves of Androzani still hover near the top of fan poles, or would it be further down? Have a nice day, Martin Gardner. You've been watching The Wicker Man too much. Have I? Yeah. Was my accent that convincing? Yeah, take the high road. One of the two. <clears throat> All right, Simon, here's the question. Would Caves of Androzani be as well thought of if it wasn't a regeneration story? Being honest? Yes. No. Well, that's fair enough. I don't think it's down to all of, you know, there's also, there's, there's a lot of reasons for people's love of it, but it's, you know, as to the gravitas, I mean, the story wouldn't be what it was if it wasn't for the sacrifice. No, of if he got to the end of it and survived into the next story and then regenerated in the twin dilemma, yeah, it would be a totally different thing. I think it would be, it would be a top 20 story, but it wouldn't be a top three story, right? Mm-hmm. Probably. I don't know, it's, well, it's, it's chick- obviously head and shoulders above what's around it, right? It's chicken and egg, though, isn't it? Because that story was probably written because it was going to be the regeneration, so they had to beat the crap out of him, basically. Yeah, but then having said that, most of what's in that story is already in Robert, you know, several of Robert Holmes' other stories, mm. most notably The Power of Kroll. So it's not like an awful lot of what's in that story is specific to the regeneration. Mm, mm. The fact that the Doctor doesn't really get involved with what happens and spends the entire time trying to save Perry, that's about it, really. Mm. And everything else really goes on around them. Mm. I was reading somebody's opinions. Um, I apologise if they're listening in. Somebody was giving the opinion saying about... Um... Don't apologise. Sod them. <laughs> well, it's their opinions, and I'm quoting them. But they're saying about the fact that the Doctor, you know, get, just gets beaten up. Um, they're saying about it's the antithesis of the 80s where everything's very clean. And uh, it doesn't matter what happens to Peter Davison, his coat is always perfectly clean. Oh, yeah, just gets, yeah. 
But I mean, that's that's a production thing, surely. Mm, that's that Graham Harper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The in the rest of the story, it's very nineteen eighties Doctor Who. Lots of violence, and it's all a bit tawdry, really. And there mm. was an awful lot of that around. And this really sort of heralded that because that was really season twenty two. And sort of continues a bit in season 23 with much less on the violence, but still lots of the tawdriness. Mm, mm. But I mean, it was already there. Warriors of the Deep. Warriors of the Deep is as much of a dry run for the Caves of Androzani as the Caves of Androzani is a dry run for season 22. Mm. So the, the, only thing, the only thing that really, really stands out about Caves of Androzani is Robert Holmes's dialogue. Because mm. the story itself isn't that much to write home about. Mm, mm. You know, everybody says it, but it, the reason why everybody says it is because it's true. It's, it's a fine episode of Blake 7. Yeah. yeah. I, I completely appreciate why people like it so much, and I don't <clears throat> I don't deny them that at all. But it's kind of the um, Empire Strikes Back effect, isn't it? You had Star Wars and the Empire Strikes Back was where everything started going wrong, got a bit dirty, and was a little bit darker and a bit more gritty, I suppose. All right, are you excited for the new Star Wars, Simon? Yes, I am. Yes. Have you bought a new Stormtrooper lately? I have bought a new Stormtrooper. Okay, what do you think of the new Stormtrooper design? I, considering you're playing around with a classic, I think it's pretty good. And it could well be to the Stormtroopers what the brass Dalek is to the classic Dalek. Reminds me of something you know. When I say it reminds me of something, I don't mean it looks like something, but the redesign reminds me of something. Donald Duck? No, 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 no. I mean the redesign between the new Stormtrooper and the old Stormtrooper. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. In a way, it's a bit like the redesign between the new Zygon and the old Zygon, but that's not the example I was looking at. Mm-hmm. It's got all the same lines and everything. Yeah. I don't know. It's probably just the artwork on the box and the fact that it's a toy. But to me, the old Stormtroopers looked a bit chunky, whereas this one looks kind of faux chunky. Do you know what I mean? It looks like it's designed... The old ones looked naturally chunky, whereas this one looks like it's designed to You know why they look chunky, though? These are probably made to fit, these ones, whereas the old ones were literally... They used to just fit them on whatever size that they could get. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so... Well, yeah, but that felt like more natural to me. Yeah, yeah. And this one... It looks less natural. It mm. looks like, it looks like what it is. It looks like somebody's taken a design classic and said, "Right, we have to do something with it because, you know, we have moved on by forty years, so mm. we can't mm. just take the old ones out of storage and use the old ones. So we better do something with it. Let's keep it as close to the original as possible, while not necessarily putting our stamp on it, mm. but updating it so that it looks." You know, I have to be honest and say that I'm, I was surprised to see stormtroopers in the first place because I, I, in my head, <clears> for, for the story to have moved on, I mean, my I, my thought the empire was all but wiped out at the end of Return of the Jedi. So seeing new stormtroopers, I thought it was all a bit strange, really. But yeah, but stormtroopers are only an army, aren't they? The costume is only a uniform, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So all you do is you just, you know train up a new army and stick them in the uniforms. Mm, mm. And I suppose, given that the new Star Wars films are going to be taking place, what, 30 years after the originals, presumably, I suppose, you know, that that uniform would be upgraded a bit. So, Mm. Well, Millennium Falcon's got a square shield on it, a square uh, radar dish on it now. Has it? Mm. 
Is that in honour of B Sky B? Yeah. <laughs> Square Hill, yeah. 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 It got knocked off in Return of the Jedi, didn't it? So they, they, uh, oh, did it? Yeah. It's been so long since I've watched it. Yeah. I never remember stuff like that anyway. I can't even remember K9 and Company. It's only 15 minutes oh. since we finished watching it. <laughs> All right, let's start with the music. <laughs> do, 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 do. What did you think do, of the music, Ben? Do, 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 do. I thought it was a misstep. Really? Why? I just, I don't know. It's, it's of his time, I suppose. But I, I, You're talking about the production again rather than the melody. A melody? Yeah. Well, it was one of those discordant melodies, wasn't it? What, ba, Strangely ba, catchy, ba, though. Ba. It works. Ba, 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 da, da. It's kind of... No, it works. The melody's fine. Do you think? Yeah. Okay. It's 1981. Yeah. you got to remember also, it's pre... Things like Duran Duran. I suppose if you think it's around the era of Auto Man and uh, Street Hawk, Knight Rider, all that. No, kind it's of pre all those things. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, those are all mid eighties. You're talking. This is. Oh no, they were really early eighties. Surely. No, Knight Rider was Auto contemporary Man was, with uh, to cashing on the Tron thing. I think wasn't it. Well, Tron was 82. 82, 83, yeah, okay. So canine was pre-Tron. Mm, mm. We're talking, this is way pre-things like Axel Foley and that. It's quite this American is, sounding. It's, well, that was deliberate, wasn't it? The idea was, the idea with the theme was, and the opening titles, was that they wanted to do something like Heart to Heart. Oh, they right. didn't have the budget to do it properly. Mm. These American programs, the opening title sequences, things like Dallas and Heart to Heart mm, and stuff mm. like that, they actually pumped a lot of money into those opening title sequences. Mm. Um, well, they did. Yeah. I mean, back in the Sorry, day... Sorry, I'm just thinking about these titles. Yeah, go on. Well, yeah, but that's the point. They were trying to do their version of it. You know, for all that people take the mickey out of the opening title sequence to K9 and Company, mm. I put it to you this way. That music and that title sequence doesn't go with that story. No. But if K9 had gone to a series mm. and you'd have had different stories, like the Sarah Jane Adventures, one set in a factory that's been taken over by aliens, one set, you know, in some other facility oh, yeah. that's technology kind mm. of thing. Mm. Stick those opening titles with something like that, a proper adventure series. Because that was the one thing this episode lacked was any adventure. I think that music with something more Dallas, you know, something we got that, that more split dynamic. Down, yeah, yeah, split down them three ways. Well, thing. I think that's what they were hoping to do, right, but couldn't okay. afford it. No, no, because that's the obvious thing. Because I think that I can't. They remember spent it on Sarah time. Jane's wardrobe instead, didn't they? No, <laughs> on her leg warmers. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. Yeah, we'll come to that in a minute. I suspect, or perhaps not. No, I think the music. The melody, the theme, mm. I think it's perfectly appropriate okay. for what the series should have been, mm. but a miss, it's not right for that episode. It's not appropriate for that episode. Not at all. No. But then that episode's not appropriate for what the series should have been, but we'll talk about that in a bit, because mm. I think that's where we should take this conversation to in the end. Mm. All right, then. <clears throat> well... Okay, we've just sat and watched it. Mm. And for the first 15 minutes, we were kind of... Well, there wasn't enough of us here to be having a party oh. with it. <laughs> Do you know what it made me... 
<laughs> it made me think of Noel's house party. I mean, overseas uh, listeners. Oh, just say what you want. Stop well, pandering to people. No, but they don't understand what the hell I'm on about. It, it was like a big stage play, okay? So you had a set on the television. This whole programme appear, appeared in one set. And it was it, it was it was in a mansion called Crinkly Bottom. And there were various room. windows and doorways. And obviously, a bit like, what was that American uh, famous American comedy series where they used to open windows and they'd come out and say a joke and shut the window again? That sort of thing. Muppets? I can't remember what it was called. But anyway, so you'd have the, the thing going on. Every now and again, a door would open and somebody would stick their head through and they'd get a round of applause because it was a celebrity everyone would recognise. But this was like the, yeah, car- the actors would each come in, stick their heads through and say, hello, I'm such and such and go again. So you had that whole first twenty minutes was spent with just people introducing them very bluntly saying, "Hello, I'm Tommy." Whatever. That's fair enough because you've got to introduce the people. I understand that, but there's way, there's more subtle I didn't ways think of doing it, was, it. Yeah, I don't think that was terribly bad. I thought the first twenty minutes was okay. the The first twenty minutes was distinguished between Terence Dudley writing really good dialogue for some of his characters mm. and really poor dialogue for some of the other characters. Mm. So actually you had a few nice scenes where the back and forth between the characters felt natural yeah. and felt like actual conversations yeah. and was quite witty and moved the thing along. And then you'd get to another scene and that this was the, the, the thing, it was really jarring. You'd get to another scene where the dialogue was anything but snappy and anything but witty <laughs> and felt like anything but a real conversation. Yeah. And it was literally people talking at each other. And it never devolved into the sort of, because this is one thing I really hate, is when actors are sitting around looking at each other like they're waiting for their cue to say their line. Mm. You never had that. No. So no. it managed to avoid that trap. Mm. But what it did instead was, because some of the characters had really clunky dialogue, and that poor boy, Brendan, was served really badly with some really appalling dialogue. Yeah, and yet the actor, we we both said the actor himself was pretty good. He was fairly natural. Yeah, he was. He had some dreadful stuff to do. Fairly good companion, actually. He's remembered for the awful bits. Yeah, the awful bits aren't the actor's fault. The awful bits are in the script. No, no. His his, um, timing and his, uh, I suppose, delivery and and the humour and things like that were... They were okay at the They're start. Okay, yeah. They drifted a bit as he got further yeah. into it because he got less and less to do and the stuff he did have to do got more and more outlandish. Yeah, wouldn't have been a bad ad trick, actually, would he? He'd have been, well, he'd have been a decent... Very similar to ad trick, actually, in a lot of ways. Yeah, he's all a bit of a mathematical excellence sort mm-hmm. of a thing, isn't he? Do you know how it made me It made me think about... I think it's, it's that thing of where all of a sudden you're very aware of how the thing's put together rather than actually watching it for what it's supposed to be. And and it felt like, you know, when um, sometimes when audio plays are recorded where somebody gives their lines and they're not necessarily in the same room and they say, right, we want you to do this line and they've got a piece of paper and they tick the lines as they've gone through. And it felt like that, that people were coming in, doing their bit and then stop the recording and then they'd do the next bit. It was, it was well, disjointed really, but... It because it's a very clunky, not a brilliant script. No, no, and and the the first thing that occurred to me is I thought, who is this aimed at? Yeah, yeah, you said that at the start because it's not really, you know, it's K nine, right? Because here's the thing: mm. background. K nine has already been announced as leaving Doctor Who, and he's been in Doctor Who for what three years by the time it's announced that he's leaving, 
and you know the sun and the tabloids kick off and fans like canine mm. especially the kids god knows why <laughs> except when i was a kid i would have loved canine yeah so that's why Right, so there's a bit of a backlash, but John Nathan Turner has been desperate to get rid of K9 because K9 really is weighing the series down. So John Nathan Turner turns around to the BBC and says, "Okay, we're getting rid of K9 from Doctor Who, but all these people love K9. What about we do a series?" Right. Okay. And then, so this series has got to be for the seven-year-olds, right? Mm. So then, this is the choice: you do a pilot episode, and then for something. That's supposed to be for seven-year-olds. The pilot episode is aimed at sort of the crowd who these days would be watching ITV3 with their ITV murder mysteries on it. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like sticking K9 in the middle of midsummer murders, except not as well... Not know. as well realised, no. No, no. Yeah, it, it's... I've got nothing against kind of doing a, 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 something that the adults can take in and the kids can enjoy at the same time because they all they do is glean the information they need in order to understand the story. Yeah. And I think the problem was there was... Nothing for them. There was no story. No, for the first 15 minutes, they... We'll come back to that. Yeah. For the first 15 minutes, it was just a lot of, not just adults, but middle-aged and older adults mm. talking to each other. Yeah. Setting up a mystery that wasn't a mystery. Yeah. Because this is the thing. As the writer, if you want to set up a red herring for the audience, mm. you have to not give away the fact that it's a red herring. Yeah. So if you want... Uh, uh, okay, in the terms of this, Sarah Jane arrives mm. and her Aunt Lavinia is missing. Mm. And nobody knows where she is. Mm. And Sarah Jane asks people, where's my Aunt Lavinia? And they say, well, she's in America, isn't she? Mm. And it's framed almost like a question. And when she says, yeah, okay, but where in America? And they say, oh, not quite sure. How do I get in touch with her? Oh, not sure. And all this kind of stuff. Mm. But the very opening scene of the thing, well, no, the very opening scene is Hecate, Hecate, Hecate. But the very next scene after that is Aunt Lavinia saying goodbye and getting on a plane, right? You know, we don't see her getting on the plane, but no. do you know what I mean? Yeah. She says goodbye at the start and gets on a plane. Yeah. And it's like, for the audience at home, yeah. if you are to appreciate how Sarah Jane feels about her Aunt Lavinia not being there, mm. you yourself have to not know where she is. No, yeah. So here's... Yeah, we're all sitting here shouting, at, well, she's got on the plane. She just said she did. Yeah. So what were you... Stop worrying about it and get on. You know? Terry Studley's done this in other stories as well, though. Mm. He's... Because he came from things like All Creatures Great and Small. He doesn't... Science fiction's not his thing. As we discovered when uh, Brendan was reading uh, phrases that the writer had obviously just read out of a yeah. computer magazine he bought brain. a couple of weeks ago. Holographic brain. Yeah, that was all a bit exceptionally awful. But there you go. I suppose that's what it was like in 1981, mm. before even the ZX Spectrum. Yeah, 83 that was, wasn't it? 82. 82. Mm. It was the year oh, after yeah, well, the 81. I had a, we it? had a ZX 81. So this is, mm. you know, I suppose for the time you get away with that because it sounds like it's I don't have such an issue with that. I, it, was, it was 
It was the way it was delivered. Yeah, and it was as much about character development as the uh, the boys anything, wasn't it? Well, the thing is, the way it was written, it was plain that the writer didn't really know what he was talking about. That's how it felt to me. Mm. In fact, I wonder if that stuff was stuck in by one of the script editors. Yeah, possibly. Because, but anyway, back to the script. So there's your first problem: is that your big red herring, mm. or your big MacGuffin, whatever? Because mm. the way Sarah Jane Smith gets into the mystery is by trying to investigate. Well, I say trying to investigate because this is the big problem, isn't it? What the story needed to be was Sarah Jane gets into the mystery by investigating the disappearance of somebody who, as it we've already discovered, hasn't actually disappeared. Yeah. And then you start getting into, oh, there's something weird going on here. But it didn't. For 20 minutes, you had people introducing themselves. Mm. Then for five minutes, Sarah Jane's wondering where her Aunt Lavinia is. Yeah. And then the next thing you know, Brendan's been kidnapped and it's Hecate, Hecate, Hecate. Hey, going back a bit, the editing was such that, that Aunt Lavinia was there on the phone. Then it immediately cut to Sarah. She said, oh, Sarah Jane will be here soon or something like that. And then... No, that's a jump cut. That's standard. Yeah, but it, it gave the impression I thought she was going to pull up on the drive and Aunt Lavinia was still going to be there. Did there, was really? no, there was no impression of time travel at all. No time moving on. Oh, that's a jump cut. That's deliberate. That's a choice. Okay. No, I thought that was fine. That's how That's how you do things. Oh, no, I appreciate that. But, yeah, it's... Mm, okay. All no, because right. that's why she says at the end, their last line is to introduce the fact that Sarah Jane's turning up two weeks later. Okay. No, that worked for me. Okay. What didn't work was the fact that I'm the, I thought the editing actually was mostly fine, mm. especially considering it was 1981. And I thought yeah, the film work and all that was fine. There was some quite nice stuff where mm. your mm. camera's following one person out of shot before refocusing on the other people who've stayed in the shot. Stuff like that. Fairly standard, but it worked okay. There were some dreadful bits. Mm. The bit where K9 has an encounter with the garden gnome before knocking a ladder over. Yeah, why did he knock the ladder over? God alone knows. And then we don't even see the ladders hitting the greenhouse or the whatever it is, even though it's patently obvious they're about to. So I can only think that in the shot they did, they didn't actually break the glass and they didn't have time to go back and redo the shot. (laughs) Yeah, and then you had that library sound effect. Brilliant. Yeah, awful. I know, I I just kept feeling myself giggling to myself and I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't giggling in a... God, isn't this crap kind of way? I would just giggle it. It was, it was just, yeah. I really enjoyed it, if I'm honest. But probably not for the reasons it was supposed to be enjoyed. I thought, it, I've always thought this, it works to a certain level. But on another level, it really, really doesn't work. And actually, the fundamental problem with it is what I've just said. You spend 20 minutes introducing everybody. And then you've only got half an hour left to tell a story, mm. and you don't actually—he doesn't actually tell a story. It goes, it goes straight from the introductions to Brendan's kidnapping, pretty much. Mm. Mm. And there's no—he doesn't have time to set up enough characters for there to be any plausibility. Right. Let's talk about the two women characters. Yeah. The two suspects. Yeah. Right. He sets up. He sets up Juno. Mm. as your prime suspect for mm. Hecate, 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 right? Yeah, Hecate, Piggledy House, yeah. But he, the only other woman character in it, mm. apart from Mark Lavinia, who's in America, and Sarah Jane Smith, who's investigating, is the woman 
who nobody's uh, nobody can pronounce her surname properly who no. works in the post office yeah and she's out to be nobody at all and there's even this really weird crazy scene where sarah jane's coming out of the police station and this woman turns up yeah outside the police station yeah to say hello to her and any ordinary drama would have thrown something into that scene where not that suspicion falls on this woman, but mm. this woman says something that managed to manages to avoid mm. throwing suspicion on herself, mm. but that when she is revealed, suddenly suddenly exposes the fact that you should have known all along it was her. But then at the end, when she is revealed, she doesn't get any dialogue. Nope. And there is no, so it was you all along yeah, thing. We, I would have got away with it if it wasn't for your robot dog. Because Sarah Jane Smith up until that very last scene, has had no contact with the coven. No. And has no contact (laughs) with the fact that there is this mystery person in charge of the Mm. coven. Mm. So this mystery person in charge of the coven is purely and entirely only for the television audience, not for anybody else. So what else as well, though, when when she meets that woman, she's just about to get in the 4x4, and the woman says, oh, Merry Christmas, and Sarah Jane Smith... Bright as day goes. Same Thank to you. you. Same yeah. to you. I'm just going to go off to find my missing ward or whatever he was supposed Even to be. Even though he's just been kidnapped. Yeah. <laughs> but here's the thing. So he's done this mystery entirely for the television audience. So there's no, at the end, revelation when there's this unmasking. And the and it jumps through hoops, having characters talking to somebody who's just off camera mm. so that you don't get to find out who it is. But... Th- in order to sell that mystery to the television audience, it has to come through the characters. Mm. So there has to be a mystery on the screen as to who's behind all this. Yeah. But you don't find out that there's anything to be behind until you actually get to the last scene where you're unmasking everybody. Mm. So the entire thing doesn't function as a story. It just it jumps through hoops, setting things up that it never pays off. And you know what I'm always saying. If you set something up, you have to pay it off. And if you pay something off, you have to have set it up. And this does exactly the opposite all the way through. Terence Dudley, he wrote Black Orchid. Okay. Which has the who done it thing, except you're introduced to the person who did it in the very first scene. You know, it's exactly the same thing here. It It's almost like it's pretending to be something that it that the person who's writing it doesn't understand mm. so he can't figure out how he's supposed to write this thing that he wants it to be mm. so it just doesn't function at all but having said that there's some great actors in it yeah no the cast is great even though the cast isn't big enough yeah yeah because like i say the problem there is well going back to what i was trying to say about the two women just now he says that one woman has been suspicious Mm. and he sets up the other woman as being entirely unsuspicious which means that it can only be the woman who's entirely unsuspicious Mm. Mm. but he never gives her any kind of backstory or edge that would make you think she had any reason for doing it there's that one scene where sarah jane is sitting in her living room having a cup of tea talking about the witchcraft and this woman is and I don't know whether this is in the writing or the directing. This woman is saying, oh, put some people's backs up when Lavinia wrote this thing about witchcraft. Mm. But the way it's directed or all the way it's written or both, you'd never get the impression that this woman herself is the one who's cheesed off about it. Yeah, no. So it just doesn't work. 
Yeah. It's like there's some fundamental disconnect between it's, the intentions and... It does make Scooby-Doo seem multi-layered. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't it? It's just bizarre the way it fails to work. Yeah, it's very, very odd. It's, um... But like you, like I was trying to say just now, I keep, we keep jumping about, I keep jumping about. There's some great actors in it. And if they'd been given good stuff, and some of them are given good stuff, like I said at the start, some of them are given, given good stuff and they shine. And others, Colin Jeevans, I don't mm. know who pronounces his surname, Jevons, Jeevans, Colin Jeevans, he's given the most diabolical part and he's a good actor. Yeah, and he's yeah. just awful. Yeah. <laughs> he's got a couple of good scenes, yeah. but he's got some really tragic scenes. Yeah. Especially when he's running around pretending to be chased by a canine. Yeah, and he's the the biker kid as well. He's straight out of Delta. <laughs> I thought he was reasonable until the bit where he gets to do his no, no, yeah, no yeah. scene. <laughs> he was okay. And almost everybody in it was either okay or would have been. Yeah, but I have to say, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I didn't expect to, and then and I got through it. And and I think you said the pacing was all right. Yeah, the, pace, the, the those opening scenes at the start, they do go on for about 15 minutes or so, maybe yeah. 20 minutes, where you're introducing people. But they're all fast and snappy enough. And there's mm. a there's a sort of... There's a... I was going to say chemistry. There's not. It's not chemistry. It's a... I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. But it's, it's like stepping stones, where you're hopping from one thing to the next. Mm. And the way you're hopping around, you're not staying with anything too long for it to overstay its welcome mm. and every new thing that you're moving to they're not moving the story along which is probably what they should have been doing they're just moving the characters along and it's fine and it's entertaining enough to keep your interest even though nothing much is happening mm. what he needed to do this is a pilot episode mm. in a pilot episode you either need to tell a really slim story so that you can get away with making your introductions or else you need to be telling the story at the same time as you're making your introductions. In other words, you need to be meeting people as you're investigating the plot, mm. rather than having them all introduce themselves to you and then discovering what the plot is. That's the reason why it doesn't work. I think there were a lot of tick boxes that needed to be ticked, and instead they ticked one big box, which is that let's put this thing together that's got canine in it. Because it doesn't seem to, nothing seemed to facilitate Canine's presence whatsoever. Well, if you'd taken Canine out of it, it wouldn't have changed a single thing. At all, no. Apart from the only thing is the bit where Canine overhears the conversation, which is a really piss poor way to move the story along. Yeah. And that could easily have been it. She's a journalist. That could easily have been achieved by her just leaving a bloody dictaphone under the stairs. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not like he even needed to be there for that. Mm. And he shoots a couple of people at the end. But, yeah, that was the know. best bit. <clears throat> but oh, the best bit once he actually started shooting, because <laughs> there's that dreadful shot at first where he's like sitting there looking at them as if he's waiting for them to move into line with his nose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. But I mean, that's the thing. If you're going to call it Canine and Company, and you know, obviously the company has to be in terms of the on-screen unfolding of the drama mm. more important because you're never going to do it with K-9 as your principal character. 
So Sarah Jane Smith has to be the principal character. But if you're going to call it K9 and Company, this is again something that I always say, story has to come out of the premise. And you have to build your elements and your subtexts and your subplots around the premise. And there's no attempt to do that whatsoever. No, no. It's Ro- like they robot wrote... dog turns up and under all hell lets loose. Well, it's like they wrote a story for something else and then suddenly thought, oh, we'd better find somewhere to put K9 in. Yeah. Yeah, very Appalling. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it is. It's, it is appalling. Yeah. But at the same time, it's entertaining. Yeah. Mm. Definitely was, has its plus point. I was surprised at how watchable it was. It is. I've always. I've never. I don't dislike it remotely. Mm. I think, obviously, the backbone of the thing is absolutely knackered. But 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 while the backbone might be knackered, the rest of it's very pretty to look at. Mm. Mm. And of course, it's hot fuzz, isn't it? It is really, yeah. yeah. Stranger turns up, locals not sure what to make of the stranger, ostensibly welcoming. Turns out they're all witches in a coven. And that's it. Yeah, Sarah Jane brought plenty of costume changes with her in her little car. Yeah, different little car, but she still had a little kid. Yeah. <laughs> I so wanted her to do a handbrake turn as she got into the courtyard there. I thought, just thought that would have been brilliant. But there you see, that's another thing. She's this journalist. And you never really get to see her being a journalist. No. I mean, the most she ever really does is talk about the fact that she wants to write a book. Yeah. And that's it. Even when she's down at the police station, that that bit at the police station is the bit where... Her journalistic instinct should have been tipped off and she should have, you know, kicked into gear. And, mm-hmm. But in the end, she just gets annoyed with the policeman who's not doing anything and storms out. Mm. No, don't storm out. Start ask. See, a decent writer would have thought up a way to have her ask a question that, you know, caused an answer that would have got her onto the right track and then things would have unfolded from there. I see the, the, the unexplained death of the policeman as well. Oh, yeah. Kind of, I'm convinced he ran onto an electrified cattle grid. That would and, explain, explain everything. And burned his bollocks. Well, yeah, he's the shaking and the... Yeah. The shaking <laughs> and the weird face. Yes. That is the only... See, this is one of those weird things, isn't it? It's like Benton in The Ambassadors of Death. Do you know Benton in The Ambassadors of Death? Remind me. Uh, there's a character who gets killed in a police cell by being poisoned right. in the Ambassadors of Death. And yeah. not in a police cell, in a unit cell. Yeah. And there's for a little bit of time, there's a suspicion about who might have done it. Mm. But then the story moves on and that bit gets forgotten about. And and it's because it's been written by three, four different writers, this story. It started out life as something else and it's been rewritten so many times. It's one of those cases where they've left something in that one of the other writers probably explained, mm. but forgot to either take it out or leave the explanation in. <laughs> so you've got this scene that's left in and no explanation for it. But if you actually watch it and watch the movement of the characters, it turns out that Benton's the only person who could have done it. So Benton's a cold-blooded murderer. Oh, now I now, now you reminded me. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you've got that in Ambassadors of Death that sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah. Once you know about it, 
If you don't know about it, you can watch the story, and because it's so long and there's so much going on, you can just forget that you didn't get an explanation for this thing. Yeah. Like in The Big Sleep. <laughs> I was talking about The Big Sleep when we were doing the films, weren't we? And I said there was a thing in the film where they misinterpreted something out of the book. Yeah. And so there's an unexplained plot, plot point that means the whole plot doesn't make any sense because of this unexplained point. Mm. It's like that. Somebody somewhere didn't understand how the story was supposed to go around that bit. And, and, it's and people same, have a go at Stephen Moffat for not tying up loose ends. I mean. But it's exactly the same here. Yeah. You've got a story that on the face of it is about something that involves supernatural elements. It's about witches trying to call up some kind of devil, Hecate. Mm. And what you've got is a story that takes place in a rational universe. So, and it's not even like the demons, where they've got Azal no. to explain away the magic bits. Yeah, It's not even like that. This is just people in a coven trying to call up the devil. The devil never gets called up. I mean, that's something else that they could have done with at the end. Mm. There could have been a scene at the end where they think something's going to happen. But the tension dissipates because none of these things that should happen mm. at the end of stories like this do. But that's the point. There's nothing in there that's outside the rational universe, apart from this one scene with the policeman where he's cycling down the road and just mysteriously dies. Yeah. It's like... Oh, so they did call up the devil. It's kind of like a black spot thing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's like an earlier draft of the script obviously had some kind of supernatural being. Suppose they say he has a heart attack. Is that what they mean? That he did actually have a heart attack because he was so worked up about it all? Wow. In which case, why did he behave like he'd been electrocuted? Well, director and writer again, isn't Mm. he? I mean, that's your rational explanation, but that's not really what we see on screen. No. What we see on screen is something freaking weird. Yeah. <laughs> or it could just be poor acting. But you know what I mean? The timing of the coincidence of the heart attack. Mm. That is... That is... In any other drama, that is your first clue as to the fact that there will be a supernatural resolution. Mm. But again, it goes nowhere. Mm-hmm. It's just... There's a line of dialogue later on, and that's it. It's mm. like... What was even the point of... I mean... If you're going to have the policeman as being not a double agent, but you know what I mean, working for the other side. Mm. So he's a, on one on the face of it, he's a policeman. But on the other side of it, he's part of this coven. If you're going to set that up as a plot point, you have to take it somewhere. There, If he's going to be the turncoat from the coven who decides that his police instinct is stronger than his instinct for the coven mm. and that he's going to tell the tale on them, you have to take that plot point somewhere. Yeah. You have to have the coven needing to do something about it mm. and getting desperate and doing something about it. And maybe then that thereafter becomes their downfall, that they were so desperate, they did something and didn't cover their tracks. And that's what Sarah Jane Smith investigates and finds them through. But no, he just drops dead. Somebody says a line of dialogue. The entire thing's forgotten about. Canine looks at a map. And all of a sudden, you're at the conclusion. It's interesting. I, I find myself applying kind of new serious sensibilities on it of what what they would have done, you know. Well, it falls under the same, roughly speaking, episode length. Mm. So, yeah, the best way of looking at it is 
Rose mm. or Partners in Crime or Smith and Jones or any one of those episodes where you've got characters to introduce. This one introduces too many characters in the wrong way. Mm. But even yeah, then... Yeah, tries to do like an Agatha Christie thing. Or, yeah. But also setting up the very idea of K-9 and Sarah Jane Smith being the team. Yeah. You can do these things, but you've got to be careful about how you do it. Like mm. I said before, you've got to... You've got to be telling the story as you're doing the introductions. As I was saying, I feel like it's one big tick box that's been ticked. Yo, yeah, let's do. We've we've got to do this thing with K nine involved. Let's just get it done. And, it, and I, I imagine there was a very small amount of time to get it done. <clears throat> I don't. Yeah, I didn't get that impression. I got the impression that everybody working on it thought they were doing the best possible job. Oh really? Yeah, because I mean, there's some lovely. Filming and they obviously went out and found some decent locations and there's a fair bit of filming and mm. the sets in it were great. Mm. The oh, cast, yeah, yeah. they went yeah. to town on the cast. It's mm. got a great cast, and like I say, the script. It's almost like the guy Terence Dudley writing the script is so involved in writing dialogue for these characters, the ones he enjoys at least. Yeah. That he's forgetting to put the story in and kind of shooting himself yeah, in the yeah, foot. Yeah, yeah, there's almost a load it? of backstory going on, wasn't there? It was saying about how what, what each person was doing, and, and I just thought, like, who are the people he's talking? they're talking about? It, it sounds like village gossip. Mm, and there's all this, you know, he spends time on the fact that this business is failing, mm. but fails really to tie in with the coven, because... Surely that should be what the Coven's activities are about, bringing this business back. Mm. Is there any dialogue that even covers that? I couldn't remember hearing any. But that, you know, all the elements for a fairly classic, and when I say classic, I mean archetypal story mm. are there. And yet, there was, none there of it's was tied weird, together. Weird decision of showing two of the main members of the Coven at the start. So all the way through, you knew they were involved. Well, yeah, that's kind of a standard thing. Mm. As long as you pay off on all the other things, that's kind of a standard thing in that you have, you, you know, if you're involved with Sarah Jane Smith and she's your identification figure, you need to know that somebody who's apparently being nice to her is actually involved in what's going on. Okay. So that if you've got the mystery of who the other person is, you can sort of tell those two things in parallel. Here's somebody she thinks is being nice to her, who's actually working against her, because you've got this other person who's also working against her, who we don't know who it is yet. Mm. And so the one thing is kind of a mirror onto the other thing, so you tell the two in parallel, so that those elements of the story inform one another. Mm -hmm. But because that mystery was never set up, there was no purpose in, in having the other half of it. It just... It's like lots and lots of really good storytelling things that could have made for a really interesting story. For me, the funniest thing, the thing that made me really enjoy it, because I was telling a little joke in my own head, was that because you had it without giving out spoilers, <laughs> at the end when you find out who the, the leader of the coven is, that means that the other ones who were acting strangely all the way through were acting strangely because they are strange and are therefore swingers. Yeah. <laughs> And that makes perfect. They're like Margot, Margot and Jerry. Do Margot and Jerry swing? No, but they're kind of like Margot and Jerry. But they go on the phone to people. And they say, Would you like to come around this evening? I'm sure, we can look after you to get that drink down. Now, is this because you recognise the actress? 
is that what I don't think it is who I thought. I thought it was uh, the lady who always used to dress up in black PVC in Spike Milligan's Q9. But I don't think it was. Very similar build. There's only about six years between the two. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think she's been in lots of other things. Yeah. But um, they were particularly... um, I don't know what the word was. They were like... Middle class and strange. They were like the characters in series three of The League of Gentlemen. Yeah. That's what they were like. Was that the one with the... um, That was the one with the swingers and and the the asphyxiation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I can absolutely see it. I would bring your dog. Yeah, (laughs) that's it. That's what it was. (laughs) I mean... I like it. I don't dislike it at all. No. I, I think it's one of those things. It's like, I tell you what it's like. It's like a folly. Yeah. You know, it's like yeah. somebody goes out of their way to spend time and effort on building something beautiful that has no purpose. Yeah. Because that's what this, that's what well, this really should have had is a purpose. That's it what was I'm a saying pilot for the series. Applying the new series sensibilities. If they'd gone at it now, I mean, I've seen a bit of the new K9 series and I couldn't watch it. But anyway. Um, think of Sarah Jane Adventures. That Sarah had a 60-minute Jane... pilot. Exactly, exactly. And you think, right, what what are the those, um, me going on about tick boxes, what are those tick boxes that need to be filled? And they, and they would have applied it completely different. I don't think it's beyond redemption. I think you could slot a few things in there to make it workable. And, and... We could just tie up all those elements that yeah. are loose and flabby. Mm. If you could just tie all those up, well, I hesitate to say it, but if a script editor had looked at that script and said, right, this needs to do this and this needs to do this, then it could have worked. But nobody... You know, if, they, if they'd taken Canine's appearance, rather than him being appearing in a crate or something, it could be that he appear, lands on the planet and that creates some kind of disturbance which gets tied in with the whole coven thing to make people think that something weird is going on. So you end up... Canine is not only the solution to the problem, but it's the cause of it as well. Well, here's the thing. This is the other thing I wanted to kind of talk about. Because well, I think we mentioned this before, and I think we mentioned this off the record at a time when we weren't recording, mm. when we first talked about the fact that we were going to do an episode about Canine and Company. And I said, I thought this was a great episode three of six. Okay, yeah. And if you'd have taken out all those introductions from the start, you'd have had that extra time to tell the story, and it could have been a really nice story in the middle of a series of six episodes. Mm. Six 50-minute canine episodes. Stick this one in the middle. It's fine. Yeah. Absolutely fine. Mm, mm. But like you say, as the introductory episode... And yeah, if you're going to do a pilot episode, okay, have canine's first appearance be part of the story, Mm. and not with a coven. Because I don't think the Coven thing works as a pilot. It's not strong enough. It's strong, but it's not strong enough in the right way. Because this has to appeal to kids. K9 could have been the mystery. He could have been the reason that Sarah Jane turns up to investigate. And then she finds out there's this robot dog walking around. And then she finds out it's from the Doctor. And it yeah. becomes something. Something like that. Yeah. Or Sarah Jane Adventures starts off in a factory, right? Yeah. The first the pilot episode is the, what's it called, Bubble Shock? Mm-hmm. And so the whole adventure is set around this factory. I mean, what's more natural for K9 than a factory or something like that? Mm. So you really need... K9 and Company as a series really needs to split between... And it wants... This is really rural. And that's probably the biggest mistake. K9 is not rural. 
I mean, that scene, that scene at the start where he's sitting on the dry stone wall in the opening titles, mm. and people take the mickey out of that. How did K9 get on the wall? That's not the problem. What's the, the problem is how did he stay up there? But that's not the problem. I don't have a problem with them showing him on the wall because no. Sarah Jane Smith could have put him on the wall. So he seems to be very light. They were picking him up and putting him down all over the place. So. Well, but you know what I mean. There's a bit in this episode where he has to read a map. Right? He mm. could be on the wall because she picked him up and put him up there and spread out a map in front of him. I don't have a problem with him being on the wall. What I have a problem with is the fact that you've got this mechanical dog who doesn't fit that picture no. of the dry stone wall. He needs to be in an urban surrounding. Yeah, yeah. The canine just doesn't work out in the countryside. It's no, a flat pavement. So, but this works perfectly, is that you have, I don't know, a story set in a factory to start off with, mm. right, is your episode one. And then a story set in a school where Sarah Jane Smith has to go, I mean, a school reunion, you know, but... Goes into a school and takes her robot dog into the school and the kids all think it's fine and the teachers all think it's a bit weird because mm. one of the teachers is up to something rotten. You know mm. what I mean? Mm. So canine's there to investigate that. Meanwhile, everybody at the school is investigating canine and because they're investigating canine, Sarah Jane Smith can get on and do what she needs to do while everybody's distracted. You know what I mean? So start in urban surroundings, a yeah. factory a school, something like that. Mm. You know, one maybe set in a shopping centre. Then your third or fourth episode, out in the countryside, fish out of water. Mm. And canine becomes this fish out of water. And you don't dwell on that too much. But that just becomes a little bit of the backstory that is this fish out of water. Because if you've got six episodes, episode four is the point at which you have to reintroduce your themes for people who weren't necessarily watching from the start. Mm. So he's a fish out of water at the start because he's this dog from the future who's all of a sudden in 1981. And then episode four, you do the fish out of water thing again so you can re-explain for people yep. who are coming in what the whole what the whole backstory of having this robot dog is. Mm. And then of, you go on Of course, on that's do... the other thing, isn't it? It doesn't introduce, it doesn't introduce Sarah Jane or, or K-9. It's, it just assumes that you know who they are from the Dot 2 series. So. Which is entirely what it's supposed to be and why it works. And, you know, and that's, I suppose, fair enough. And you do get to hear that she's a journalist, that she's taking time out to write a book, which is why she's coming to live in the house. You get just about enough of that stuff. Mm. And the letter that the Doctor sends with the robot dog. And you get a double-sided sleeve on the DVD. Yes. Which side have I got? Uh, yeah. I've got the uh, non-Doctor Who side out. I think that makes sense. Because it's no good pretending that it's Doctor Who, because it isn't. No, it's not. It's. I think it's a real shame, actually. You know, it got decent viewing figures. It was repeated the following year, when it, as, insofar as I recall, got decent viewing figures again. In fact, I have a feeling... The second time it was shown, because it was shown at Christmas, it was shown something mm. like Boxing Day or Christmas Eve, mm. got something like 8.2 the first time, and then I think it might even have gone up the second time. So it got good viewing figures and could yeah. have gone to a series. And if it had gone to a series, they could have ironed out all these problems. Mm. Somebody could have taken an objective look at it and said, right, it's obviously popular enough, people like it, people want to see more of it, but by the same token, it's not working. 
And they knew it wasn't working because it didn't go to a series. Somebody somewhere looked at it and said, that didn't work. We're not going to make any more of those. If that person instead had said, that didn't work, but people like it, mm. let's do some more, but let's figure out what the problem is and solve that problem before we bring it back. You could have had, I don't know, two or three series of six episodes of K9 and Company. The reason why um, Bob Baker wasn't involved in the writing of it, you just thought they would have gone straight back to him, wouldn't they? I don't know. I It was Dave Martin's dog that they were based on, and Bob Baker and Dave Martin had stopped working together at this point. Oh, I see, okay. And I don't know what either of them were doing, but I, I it was John Nathan Turner who was behind the project, and mm. he didn't like bringing back these writers from the past. He'd rather get somebody he knew from all creatures great and small. Mm. So then you end up with Terence Dudley, who patently i mean he's obviously exceptionally good at what he does yeah he terence dudley's well very well respected television writer director and all, producer. Cre all creatures was great mm. great program he just doesn't have an appreciation for science fiction mm. Mm. and so giving him somebody else's characters especially when one of those characters is a robot dog and then asking him to develop the pilot for a series it's just asking for trouble, really. Mm, mm. You're right, Bob Baker would have done something different. And I don't know how much, in the end, Bob Baker had to do with this series in Australia. I've only seen a few minutes of it. Mm. And, you know, I thought, well, this is not aimed at me, so I'm not going to... No, exactly. It was so far removed from... But by the same token, from what I gather about it, three kids and a professor mm. with a robot dog. Mm. I mean, it's Scooby-Doo. Yeah. But also it's urban. It's set in a future that's after some kind of disaster or something, oh, I right. think. Mm -hmm. I think it's set in London, even though it's filmed in Australia and they've all got Australian accents. I think it's set in London and it's London after some kind of disaster has done something weird. It's kind of a slightly sort of totalitarian thing because people are having to cope with whatever this disaster is or whatever it is. Maybe the global warming or something. But urban... Three kids and a professor. I think it's three kids. Mm. Writes itself. You only need that set up and you can get as many episodes out of it as you can bring writers to the table. The odd, the odd thing about it is I'm fairly sure that K-9 appears as normal at the beginning of the series. And regenerates. And he regenerates, yeah. Yeah, I read that. I'm not sure how that... Better off just starting from the off and saying, this yeah. is a different K-9. Yeah, I don't if know. If you're going to make him different, then just... Well, you don't even need to tie it into the original at all. Not at just all. say, this is K-9, a robot dog who's appeared here from outer space. That's as much explanation as you're going to get. Yeah. But this is, again, going... Having said all that about the urban setting, the professor and the three kids, you go back to K-9 and company, and you think, right, they're set up in this mansion on the outskirts of this village, and you've told a story in the village... What are you going to do for a second episode? Mm. What are you going to do? Bundle them both into a car and drive into town at the start of every week. Mm, go off and do the things you should have done in the pilot. Or else <laughs> Sarah Jane Smith moves back home into Croydon and you set it there or whatever. Mm. You'd have to. But it just patently doesn't work in the countryside. Mm. And you've sunk it by setting them up in that house. Because presumably those sets were the sets they would have wanted to reuse. Because mm. they obviously spent a fair bit of money on the sets. Mm -hmm. No, it's just a 
It's just a very enjoyable disaster, really. Yeah. <laughs> Are we going to score it out of ten? Oh my god, how do I do that? Yeah, go on then. Was that meaning I have to go first? Oh, I don't mind. Okay, I'll, well, I'll do a three. You're going to only give it a three? Yeah. I think it's worth a six. I think it's entertaining. Really? Yeah, I think it's entertaining enough. I think it passes the time well enough. I'd give it a six because I think there's a lot of effort on display there, even if the one thing that really sinks it is the script at the heart of it. Mm. And I think I think all the problems are down to the script. So I think it's worth a six. Okay. But only a three. It's an enjoyable three. You ever see that's? Oh, maybe I should go to a five. Oh, right, okay, okay. No, 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 I'm not saying you should change the school. Okay. Well, it's like if I was marking some like Delta, I'd probably just done a Lee. (laughs) If I was doing Delta, I'd probably give Delta a higher mark, even though I detest it. Because I can, it's you know, it's not that bad. It just does things I don't like. But this at least was enjoyable. But it's. It's a mess. Well, they suffer from something different. Delta mm. had a terrible production, but it has a decent story at the heart of it. Mm. A decent script at the heart of it. This has a really good production, but it's got a terrible script at the heart of it. Mm. And it's choose your poison. I think I'd rather watch a decent script with bad production values. And, you know, to give it its due, Delta and Havana Men is not that bad production values no it no. just is cheap it, it presses a lot of my buttons so yeah mm. Mm. but this is a really lovely looking production mm. or should have been you know but for that one fundamental problem and and uh, you know liz isn't that great in it if i'm and honest it's only about five years after she left is it five years after she left Doctor Who? Actually, she went out in 76. So, yeah, it's five years. I mean, she's always a joy, but I don't think her performance is that great in it. There's a, she's always been, for me, a bit of a nodding actor. Yeah. She's just like one of those... Is that bit with the goat? There's a bit with the goat where she's just found the dead policeman, isn't she? Yeah, and looks up and sees and, and, and then there's a <laughs> twig snaps and she looks up and sees a goat. And then for a brief moment, she smiles because it's only a goat and then remembers, oh, hang on, I'm looking at a dead body. The grimaces again. Yeah. <laughs> yes, there's some bizarre bits. <laughs> yeah. This was uh, this was not going to be the best way for her to be remembered as a sort of final proper appearance oh, in the Doctor Who universe. So thank God they brought her back in the new series, really. Yeah. And yeah. she got the series out of well, it. The Five Doctors redressed it, didn't it? And kind of pulled it all back. As it well, no, be. I don't know whether the Five Doctors really did, to be oh, honest. Oh, I do, I do. No, I love the Five Doctors, but yeah. I don't know if that really... Uh, I don't know if that really did many favours for Sarah Jane Smith. Oh, what, you mean the... Um, well, she falls down into a narrow down. incline and then has nothing to do except follow people around for the rest of the episode. I just love her for that bit where she... Falls down about, the incline. No, full motions about the hair and the teeth. That's awful. I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doesn't no, make it doesn't make sense. Bit. Her performance in that bit's nice. Yeah. i got to say, though, Sarah Jane Adventures so shows what they... You know, they say that Rose shows what they should have done in the TV movie. Mm. And I would contend that that's not the case. I don't think that's the case. I think with 
well, I'm about to write about this, but I think the TV movie got a lot more things right than people give it credit for. Definitely. I think it got one fundamental thing wrong at the start. And people say you need to see the Doctor through the companion's eyes. Mm. You do see the Doctor through the companion's eyes in the TV movie. Mm. When Paul McGann becomes a Doctor, mm. you see him only through Grace's eyes. And even prior to that, if it hadn't been for that scene with Sylvester McCoy sitting in the TARDIS at the start, mm. reading the book, if it had started with the gangs yeah. about to have this shootout and the TARDIS lands, apropos of absolutely nothing, no explanation and no backstory beyond the TARDIS lands, this guy opens the door and gets shot. Mm. And he has no dialogue whatsoever. Sylvester McCoy has no dialogue. Yeah. And I think the regeneration is a massive problem with that. But if you'd started there and then had him change, mm. and that is the demonstration that he's an alien, and then you get to I see still like, again. I still love, I adore the scene in the hospital where he's on the operating table. Oh, you'd and still have that, I yeah. adore that. Yeah, so he still has that I'm not human. Just cut the first five minutes out of the TV movie. Oh, and for the brilliant. Bit. If only for the bit, oh, I'm enthusing about it now, the, the bit where he's in the back of the car and he starts pulling the the, the wire out of his chest. Mm. That is just brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot to like in that. Actually, part. you could still have all that stuff. Yeah. Just get rid of the scene with him in the TARDIS at the start and that bit on Scaro with the trial of the Master. <sighs> yeah. Get rid of that first, the pinky whatever it is, Daleks. three minutes or whatever, mm. and you're absolutely fine. Mm-hmm. And you're doing all the things that people oh, yeah. say it doesn't do. And the fact that he had the master on board could just come out in the wash, couldn't it? it could yeah, just suddenly, exactly. Why were you here? There's something... There's no explanation given in, say, Scream of the Schalke for why he's got a robot master on board. Not really. I mean, I think there is. But mm. do you know what I mean? It's just one of those stupid things that mm. works. Why does it work? Because it just does. Mm. And so TV movie master is also... Hitching a ride on the Doctor's TARDIS. Why not? Why wouldn't he be? Mm. Mm. You know, it can work. Just get rid of those first five minutes. It's fine. Mm. Mm. You know, somebody should do that. Somebody should do an edit of the TV movie with the first five minutes took out. (laughs) (laughs) And then it works the same as Rose does. That's a fairly lightweight story Mm. with a... with an alien menace that is to all intents and purposes human enough that people can mistake it for just being a regular fella. Like people can mistake the Autons for being, you know, a student prank. And the story's quite light. You get plenty of time to introduce the Doctor through the eyes of the companion. Sorted. And that's what people say the TV movie doesn't do. And back to Canine and Company, that's kind of what you really needed more of. Mm. That kind of deftness of storytelling. Where it almost disguises how well it's working because it's just getting on and doing it. Mm-hmm. Oh well, Canine and Company, that was you. Right, I've not seen any films since the last time we talked, but it has been about a month. Mm. But I have seen one thing. Well then. Shall I? Go on. I got a review copy of... Oh, no, I forget the name of the writer. Michael J. Bird, maybe? Mm-hmm. The guy who wrote The Lotus Eaters in the 70s. Okay. He did... Okay, this is, these are quite famous things he did because these were quite expensive BBC I know things. I Lotus Eaters cause, because of the band and I knew they were named after a book, so... Right, he did uh, 
So in the 1970s, he did for the BBC quite a few things, which were series set in the Mediterranean. Mm. So there's like nice expensive filming. So they're kind of expensive BBC series, so well-remembered. The kind of things that, you know, in amongst the sort of fairly drab grayness of the rest of television really stood out. And he did all these things set in the Mediterranean, and that's what he was known for. But then in 1985, and this is the bit where you'll sort of go, Oh, I see. In 1985, he did a six-part, slow-moving Scandinavian mystery thriller. So, now there's a huge fashion <coughs> for slow-moving Scandinavian mystery thrillers. They've finally released this story on DVD. It's called Milestrom. Right. Which is actually a Dutch word to describe a... Storm? No, um... no a whirlpool. A wolf, right. But the first time that the word was used was to describe a whirlpool off the coast of Norway. Oh, right. Okay. Hence the significance of it. Mm. And this story is set in Norway. And when I tell you the premise, you'll think, that sounds brilliant. But it wasn't brilliant. <laughs> the premise is that there's a woman living in England and she suddenly gets called into a solicitor's office and the solicitor says... Somebody's died and left you something in their will. And she says, who? And he says, the name. And she says, I don't know that name. And he says, he's from Norway. She says, well, I, I didn't really have any connection with Norway. Her father is Norwegian, but there's no connection between him and this other bloke. You know, not even geographically. They're not even from the same part of Norway. Mm. And she's been left a business and two houses. So why is this mysterious millionaire in Norway left mm. her a business and two houses and you think this is going to be intriguing yeah and to tell you the truth it's not a bad story given modern sort of television scripts it wouldn't deceive you for a minute what was actually going on and it doesn't but the trouble is it doesn't really attempt to there's like it's like in K9 and Company, there's two women in this thing, Marlstrom. Yeah, apart from the central character, the yep. woman who's gone over, there are two sisters. One of them's acting suspicious, and the other one's very friendly. So who did it? Right. So, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's patently obvious from the start. And nobody else is introduced as a suspect. Yeah. So you spend, and it's six episodes long, 45 minute, 50 minute episodes. So at the end of the first episode, everybody's introduced and you've got these two sisters. And then from the second episode to the fifth episode, one of them's behaving suspiciously. And that's literally it. Four episodes. And it was enjoyable and it was entertaining, but it was basically four episodes where you don't really get to find out very much. You know, it drip feeds you little bits of information. And then right at the end, this other character who's like um aunt of these two sisters, who's been in through the whole thing and is kind of a slightly eccentric character, but she's disabled, so she's in like a nursing home, she's mm. old. So she's never a suspect because she's like in a wheelchair, basically. And at the end of the thing, she's been talking to the doctor. This family doctor is also like this almost Greek chorus character throughout talking to this woman. And at the end, the revelation is this woman in this nursing home tells the doctor everything. It's like, 
Nobody investigated to get to the point where they found no. everything out. No. This character just spills everything at the end. Yeah, she just found somebody who knew it all. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of... But it was in... I get, again, I gave it a six. Because yeah. even though the script doesn't really work any better than Canine and Company, mm. it was entertaining. There was lots of nice location stuff. For six hours, I wasn't remotely bored once. And I enjoyed the entire thing. But it was rubbish. Mm. <laughs> oh, but I tell you what, the very first scene, and he's only in the very first scene, the very first character you meet, apart from this woman who's the centre of Paul Darrow. Oh, right, okay. It's produced by Via Lorimer, who worked mm. on Blake Seven, directed by David Maloney, who directed Genesis of the Daleks, mm. has John Abinari in a cameo, and um, the family doctor is. What's he called? Trevor Baxter? Um, Jago and Lightfoot. Oh, right. Professor Lightfoot from yeah. Jago and Lightfoot. Because <laughs> Talents of Wang Chang was also directed by David Maloney. Mm. So, I mean, it's not remotely like Blake Seven or Doctor Who, as you can tell. It's more like Borgen or something. Except it's not. But that's why they've released it on DVD now. But it's nothing remotely like Doctor Who, but there are so many Doctor Who connections in it. That... A couple of weird... Uh, well, not weird, but one particularly tenuous dot two connection and one quite interesting one at the weekend is uh, I was part of a team putting together a concert of three electronic bands here in Exeter over the weekend and the headlining band the Vile Electrodes uh, were called in by Matthew Sweet or Dr Matthew Sweet as an example of a, of a modern electronic band to talk to them about how the Radiophonic Workshop on his radio show it, it was it was on BBC yeah it's on iPlayer actually on the radio, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Oh, really? And they were talking to me about what a nice man he was, but he was so incredibly intelligent that he was intimidating. Mm. But, um, yeah, but great band, Violet Electros, if you like your electronic stuff. But, um, yeah, that was nice. And I haven't met him briefly. Mm. And of course, he wrote on Seasons of War as well. So, um, Well, he did the um, Culture Show documentary for the 50th anniversary. That's right, yeah. And then secondly, this is a bit more tenuous, was that uh, the second band on the lineup was a band called Shelter, who uh, do, uh, well, if I tell you they record so a lot of... this is a Frontios reference, right? Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Not that uh, tenuous, then. No. <laughs> um, uh, they do uh, sort of a line of electronic pop, so they've recorded with Andy Bell and people like that that work with Erasure. And their manager, a really nice man called Simon Skinner, was uh, we were sort of... Well, my, my good friend Alan P. Jack, whose first question to anyone he meets new is, do you like Doctor Who? And uh, both of them said, well, no, not really. Um, but Simon Skinner, the manager, said, no, but I'm in a Doctor Who book. And we went, what? And he said, he said, do you know a writer called Jonathan Morris? And I said, yeah. Mm -hmm. And he ends up, I think he went to school with him. Oh, so for Jonathan yeah. Morris's first Doctor Who book, he named a character, character after, yeah. after him. Well, he's been on the Blue Box podcast, you know. Jonathan Morris? Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> so next time you talk to him, say, oh, you know your mate Simon oh. Skinner. Yeah. He was here. He's a lovely man, really. Well, Jonathan Morris was from um, Taunton. All oh, right, okay. So that was the how it, how it all started, I guess. Okay. Right, moving on to Doctor Who, Simon. Okay. Looking forward to it? Yeah, of course I am. Of course I am. I've, I've kept away from 
not actively, not as much as I did last year. I did last year. I actively stayed away from it all as an experiment to see whether it improved my enjoyment. Until I spoiled the whole damn thing for you when we did our preview show. Yeah. But we have not done that this year because no. I did it with Al instead. No, but I know bits and pieces, but I don't even know if that stuff's true. So, is there anything you're especially looking forward to? No. Really? <laughs> no. Uh... No, be because one that kind of goes ooh a bit more than one of the others, surely. Well, I'm I'm looking forward to the first two episodes mm-hmm. because I probably know more about those than any any of the others. But uh, no, Reece Shearsmith in the Mark Gatiss episode. I hope they've given him a good part because he's a brilliant actor. Reece Shearsmith, yeah. When he's given good gutsy stuff, he's really good. Right. When he's not playing Patrick Trion, he's brilliant. Or Dastari. Yeah. That's a joke. <laughs> it does look like him in the picture, though. I've it seen does. the picture. Yes. Yeah. It's the glasses. Yeah. It's yeah, either yeah. that or a children's entertainer, like Mike Reed or something. But, uh... He does look very strange in that. If it, I don't, I, it's impossible to say whether that's. Because I, I said to Al, I don't know if this is likely or not, but I said somebody like Rhys Shearsmith would be exactly the kind of person you'd bring in to play multiple parts in the same episode. Oh, I say yes. Wouldn't he? So I just said, I wonder if that's just one of the things he's doing. Oh, and then, of course, there's an experimental episode. That is the experimental episode. That is the experimental episode. Well, there are two, actually. Okay. Two very experimental. Do you know what? No! I won't tell you then. Okay. But, I mean, that costume that he's wearing in that picture, Mm. if he's in the entire episode like that, people are just going to go, what, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. So I can't really (laughs) see it. I don't know. That just looks so bizarre. I'm trying to think of what else. <clears throat> it does look very 80s future, doesn't it? Mm. What writers have we got? I don't. That's one thing I don't know a lot about. Well, Moffat's doing the first two. Yeah. And Toby Whithouse is doing two. Excellent. Then you... Oh, well, you've got Peter Harness doing two, which is the Zygon one. He did Kill the Moon. Okay. And he recently did the um, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Oh, wow, Yes. So Which he's done the Zygon I've still got to catch up at the end of that. That was great. And then, of course, there's two at Moffat at the end. Mm. Then you've got five and six are... Oh, God, can't call it to mind now. One of them is Guided Mummy on the Orange Express. What was his name? And Flatline. <laughs> oh, my God, it's completely gone out of my head. Mm. You can tell it's the end of the recording session, right? Yeah, it is late. Well, Mark Gatiss has obviously done one. Yes. Catherine Trujena's done one. Is it not all two-parters, then? I thought it was two-parters all the way through. We'll see. Okay. There are two sets of two episodes with uh, different writers on either episode. It's two-parters and never two-parters, are they, anyway? So. Well, these ones that aren't two-parters might be two-parters. Right. Different writers writing either half. That's a cool idea. Well, we'll see how it turns out, because nobody quite knows. Mm. Well, nobody who doesn't go on spoiler sites. I would really like Peter Harness to pull something brilliant out of the bag for the Zygons. Because I I don't have the issues with Kill the Moon like other people have. um, It would be nice to see the Zygons getting a really decent story. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, as much as it was nice to see them in the 50th, they weren't the focus of it. No. So it'd be nice to see. It'll be nice to see a Zygon story with their focus. It looks very urban. Well, it is very urban because I know something of what the sort of uh, 
the plot will be not the plot but the premise mm. so obviously it is urban I don't know whether Zygons will work as well in an urban environment as for example canine would have no well wait and see it probably will you know you just after them being in a Scottish village you just can't imagine them in an urban environment it just seems so aggressive is the mm. thing I would like to see pulled back a bit well, I tell you what the Zygons are, is they're very, natural's not the word, but do you know what I mean? They're very... Organic? Yeah, very, very organic. Mm. So to see them in an organic surrounding mm. feels more natural than an urban surrounding. Just like the Cybermen are so... What's the word I'm looking for now? I'm losing... Metallic? It. Yeah, not metallic, but do you know... Uh... Not scientific, but mm, mm. you know what the word I mean. Yeah, they're so technological. Yeah, that the, the Cybermen only really work on spaceships or space stations. Mm. I think if you see the Cybermen somewhere else, it doesn't quite work as well. I don't know. I'd like to see them in a swamp. <laughs> It'd just be. It wouldn't work. It's just what I always say about the elements of a story must marry up with one another, and you know. Yeah, Cybermen in the countryside. This is one of the things why Silver Nemesis doesn't work. Cybermen in the countryside. Yeah, it does need to kind of go back into their environment, doesn't it? I mean, you've got things, you know, Cybermen down in the crypt. Yes, that worked, but only because it was quite creepy. You mm. know, again, the body horror thing. But, um... but Zygons, again, both the times we've seen them, Scottish village mm. and then Queen Elizabeth I. Yeah. But again, that's rural. Mm. You know, mostly rural, and the Zygons didn't feel out of place in that rural environment. Stick them in a city. Mm. I don't know, the photographs I've seen and the short clips we've seen from that, those That's two episodes. Dog scratching, by the way. Probably won't be able to hear it. Oh, okay. The short clips we've seen from that episode, they just look a bit out of place. Mm. I don't know, we'll wait and see the episodes. We'll find out when the episodes are on. Mm. Right, Peter Capaldi made a very. He's um in the latest big issue, isn't he? Talking about the BBC. Oh, is he? Mm. Oh, talking about the what the government wants to do with the BBC. Well, yeah, he's just making the point that it seeing past all the profit making that that the way that it's financed is it means it can work in a way which isn't finance led. It can make artistic decisions as well as and creative decisions as well as financial decisions. And he just, I think his line is, <clears throat> since when did not making, you know, uh, I'm trying to think how he says it. Well, but now you're getting the BBC making financial decisions like ditching their contract with the Met Office. Yes, and getting rid of BBC Four for the sake of 50 million. That's what happens. Mm. Your licence fee's frozen for how many years has it been now? Mm. Got to be half a decade. And while inflation might not have been high for that half a decade... You've still had inflation, and the BBC is still doing an awful lot of things. Yeah. That's life at the moment, sadly. The uh, the thing that doesn't make sense is that they're talking about getting rid of BBC Four for the sake of 50 million, and at the same time he's saying they're saying that they're going to make the BBC more of an open thing, more online, and be more involved in artistic projects. And yet they're going to get rid of their arts channel. To go online, maybe. Well, maybe, maybe it does, doesn't. Tend to become to make not sense. so much a channel as as and when things are 
See, BBC Two, see, the thing about BBC Four is a lot of that stuff can be on BBC Two. Mm. So there's no, re- there's no reason why you can't have... Because, see, BBC Four is only on from 7pm anyway. Mm. And, you know, more than 50% of it, something like 80% of it, is repeats of programmes either from last year or from earlier in the week or whatever. Mm. So for the actual new programming you've got on BBC Four, you could do the same amount of new programming on BBC Two, mm. as long as, you know, you didn't allow the quality or the depth to slide on the counter. It could be argued with all small, smart TVs becoming so much, you know, so many TVs with iPlayer fitted into them anyway. But in which case, that's the programmes when you, you could, want anyway. I just, my, my fear is, and it's not me being an old fogey, it's just that it's it's like privatisation. It's kind of like a one-way trip in some respects. It's very difficult to, to reverse that. Yeah, in a way though, BBC Four is only what BBC Two used to be before BBC Two started getting into alternative comedy. Mm. Before, in fact, BBC Four is what BBC Two used to be before Channel Four came along. Mm. So as long as BBC Two goes back to being a bit more like it was, nobody's actually losing out by not having a channel dedicated to it. As long as, like you say, you've got somewhere where you can find that stuff, like iPlayer. Mm. Mm. So it needn't necessarily be the worst decision in the world because all you'll do is, while it sounds like they've lost a lot of money, 50 million, that's not a huge amount to the BBC. I don't think it's a huge amount of money at all. It was a cheap channel to make. So if you can devote enough of the BBC Two budget to making those same kinds of programmes and keeping strands, like they have comedy for an hour on, I don't know, a Thursday, two half-hour programmes, as long as you've got a strand on certain parts of the week where you've got highbrow programming, you've not actually lost anything, have you? Mm, mm. So potentially it doesn't need to be as disastrous as it probably sounds. No, my only concern is obviously that people are already complaining about paying the licence fee because they can't get their heads around it. And um, Now they've lost the channel. And they they lose the channel, they're going to be looking and saying, what exactly are we paying for? Well, that's it. They're not because the licence fee hasn't gone up. No, no. So that's exactly why, <clears throat> because they're not paying for it anymore, essentially. That's just the way of things at the moment. Mm. Hopefully, give it a few more years and things will turn around and actually the BBC will be able to start expanding again instead of contracting. Mm. Because, you know, with something like the BBC, as long as you make sure it is there and as long as you make sure it is funded, you'll have periods where it expands and periods where it contracts. Mm. <coughs> Like all things, uh, like all you, business, all all good business, you should do anyway. Really, well, yeah, you should do. But I don't want people to lose their jobs. But but you find your level. Yes, if you've got a period of you know a period of boom, you yeah. expand yeah. to meet the demand. Yeah, and then if you know things take a turn in the other direction, you contract so that you're not being profligate. Yeah, and then when you get another boom. You expand again. You don't expand too quickly. You just... So that you don't get... Yeah. I mean, as long as you use common sense, yeah. and you're not literally throwing money down the toilet, mm. you know, it's cyclical, like a lot of things. And the BBC's been around for pretty much a century now. Mm. Mm. So it's not like it doesn't have form in expanding and contracting to meet the demands of its audience. Mm. I mean, the viewing figures on BBC Two are t- on BBC Two, BBC Four are tiny. Mm. Show those programmes on BBC Two, they'll probably be watched by ten times as many people. 
there's also that um, the halo effect of uh, that happened with Six Music, where there was the outcry when they were going to get rid of Six Music, and now its its listenership has increased mm. quite a bit. I think since purely through the publicity of that. Well, if you had a dedicated internet channel which calls itself BBC Four and shows that strand of programming, but all those programs debut on BBC Two or somewhere before moving on to the BBC Four platform on the internet, you know, like a not like an extension of iPlayer sort of thing, it could actually be to the benefit of the programmes and the viewers. Mm. Not that I'm saying I think getting rid of BBC Four is a great decision. No. But I'm just saying yeah. it's not necessarily the worst decision. No. It's not the end of the road. No. No. I mean, BBC will always, as long as it exists, continue to make a wide variety of programmes that aren't always aimed at chasing viewers. Mm. Anyway. And that's the point. Yeah. And that's why we've got Doctor Who. Yes. And on that note, we shall leave it till next time, where, with any luck, we'll be reviewing The Magician's... Nephew. Magician's I always want to say the magician's nephew. Yeah, the magician's books. apprentice and the witch's familiar. My favourite Narnia book, the witch's familiar, the magician's nephew. Yeah, I don't know. It's all confusing. It all Have you ever read the magician's nephew? The Narnia books I've yeah. read. Yeah, yeah, the prequel. Yeah, it's I read it first. Actually, I read it before so the Lion, yeah. Witch, and the Wardrobe, mm. because at the time when we were growing up, they had. They put them out as a set, numbered, and Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was numbered two in the set. So you started with number one. Mm. I don't know if they still do that, but the the edition that was around when I was a kid had numbers on the spines. I've been looking forward to them doing a film of it. Obviously, they're not going to do any more, but it's the most sci-fi of them. Uh, <clears throat> I don't think those films did enough to uh, do the whole lot. No. I think to do all seven was a very ambitious way to look at it anyway. Mm. Anyway, I tried to say goodbye three times now. So yeah, it's a good one. I was JR. And I was Simon. And we'll speak again soon.